Once again, the United States and the world are facing a severe outbreak of COVID-19. Now in the new, as we're often told, highly contagious Delta variant. So as the numbers are coming up again, and as policies are being made once again in attempt to respond to the data that's coming in, I thought it would be good to bring on another guest who analyzes COVID for a living. In today's episode, we will take a deep dive into Delta variant and try to address in a reasoned data-driven fashion some of the hot button issues that have arisen because of it. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another informative episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember that views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. You can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics and on the Facebook and Instagram pages of the Robertson School of Government. So today I'm very happy to have a great guest with us to talk about some of the policy implications of what's happening with Delta variant. And of course, before you can make policy on COVID, you need to have a good sense of actually what's going on in terms of the medical facts on the ground. And I can't think of anybody who is sort of better able to express to us as the lady what's going on in the medical world than someone who has immense experience as a journalist reporting on medical issues for a trade publication. And that is my friend, Mary Sarah Broff. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Mary, if you wouldn't mind, just tell the listeners a little bit about sort of your job, what you do, and how that intersects with with COVID-19 and and the COVID-19 coverage. Okay, I'm the regulatory editor for BioWorld. And BioWorld is a trade publication that covers the science and the development of pharmaceuticals, biologics, diagnostics, medical devices. And I've been doing this for more than 10 years at BioWorld. When COVID started, we went a little bit out of our niche to cover COVID in a very expansive way. And our publication is subscription-based, but because we recognize that COVID was of such concern to everyone, this is a global publication. We've got staff all over the world. We decided that we would make all of our COVID coverage accessible for free. And so if you go on the bioworld.com site under special reports, you can click on COVID and you can see the literally thousands of articles we've written since COVID started last year. And we track the drugs that are being developed, the testing devices and the vaccines. And and so it shows what's in the pipeline. It shows what's been approved. It's just a really good resource to kind of follow the things. We're not looking so specifically at what the hospitals are doing or what doctors are doing, but we're looking at the end of the development. And, and of course, data has to drive that. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so I want to actually step back for a second. And one of the, the questions that we've been hearing a lot, and I think this maybe will help some of our listeners, 
are you know questions about the speed with which the vaccines were produced. Some people saying this happened really fast, this was amazing. Other people saying it happened maybe too fast. And so you've been kind of chronicling this this area of this industry for for quite some time. What is what is unique about this sort of vaccination process? Why was it able to be done so quickly? And maybe you can just give us a little bit more data on and, and sort of more of an, of an explanation for the layperson on why does speed in this case not mean that it's not safe? One of the things that was so unique about this was the approach the government took. It was an all hands on deck. We're going to work on this. We're going to throw resources at it. And that means human resources. So, you know, with other vaccines in the past, there wasn't that urgency And they could follow this long, slow process where after it was studied in all these thousands of people or whatever, the application would be sent to the FDA. It would go into a line to be approved. And the FDA would then take, usually FDA review is 10 months. There would be reviewers assigned to it and they would go through the whole process and double check that all the I's are dotted and the T's crossed and before it would be approved or rejected. In this case, they knew there was an urgency. We couldn't wait five to 10 years, or in some cases, it's taken even longer for a vaccine to be approved. So how they sped this up, first of all, it built on the science we already know. The mRNA technology, yes, these are the first vaccines using that, but the technology had was already in the works, had already been adapted. It wasn't unknown. So we're not starting from scratch here. And like with the J&J and the AstraZeneca vaccines, AstraZeneca isn't used in the U.S., but it is used in other places. Those followed a more traditional platform. We've got other vaccines that are in the works that are using even different novel platforms. So we'll be hearing more about those in the future, I'm sure. But the other thing that was different about this, these vaccines were tested in huge numbers of people to begin with. And uh, like the Pfizer vaccine, I believe they enrolled 40,000 people in their phase three trial. And I'm assuming that's bigger than a normal phase three trial. Oh, that's huge. You've got some drugs, especially for rare diseases, that are approved after they've only been tested in 50 or 100 patients. Now with, you know, diabetes drugs, heart drugs and stuff like that, yes, they have to have a much larger enrollment in their trials. But 40,000 is very immense for these trials. The other thing that was different about this, instead of waiting for all the data to come in before they put their package together and submitted it to the FDA and then waited in line for the FDA to get to it, they were allowed to submit their data as they got it. It was a rolling submission. So the FDA could start reviewing it as they got it. And and because this was a public health emergency, the FDA did. They jumped on it immediately and they pulled human resources, more people than they normally would have. And so they could see if there were any issues or questions that needed to be answered right up front instead of waiting at the back end of it and saying, oh, wait a minute, what about this? You need to test this. And so the the companies developing these vaccines were able to respond in real time to 
any issues that came up in their studies to get the data needed for approval. And that cut out months and months of development time. And Operation Warp Speed was devoted to this. They had, it was a public-private partnership that worked. And I think it shows our science and our understanding of things have grown over the years too. There's no reason for us to go through the same process that we did, what, 50, 70 years ago for a polio vaccine? Yeah. That we do today. It's just, we're not back 50 or 70 years ago. Science has advanced. So, so let me ask you this. Because the you know the attention has been a lot on oh this is, has been done so quickly, but it sounds like what you're saying and this is something that I've sort of wondered about is maybe the problem isn't that this vaccine came out so quickly, but that other vaccines and, and life saving medical treatments have been rolled out so slowly. And if we can do that this one safely, can we make a process that's more streamlined and effective for future diseases? So you know I know you do regulatory editor sounds like you're you're looking at some of this stuff based on your study of this. Are there lessons we can learn from COVID-19 that could make this process more efficient and effective for life-saving medical treatments in the future? Definitely. And the various health experts, public health experts, the regulatory agencies, Congress, all of them are looking at this for lessons learned. And they do expect in the future that vaccine development will be much quicker, that it will follow this pace, especially in a public health emergency. And part of it, too, you've got to understand, you know, I was talking about polio and and stuff. Years ago, when a new drug or a vaccine was developed, a lot of times they didn't completely understand the mechanism of action, how the drug worked. Now we're going in with drugs and biologics that we know how they work. We may not know all the side effects, but we know how they work. And that really helps with your development and with the review of it. If you can know how it works within the body, what it targets, how it affects the body. So like with these mRNA vaccines, they don't work, you know, like your measles vaccine. When you got a measles vaccine, it was almost like getting a touch of the measles. And your body would respond to that And so it would recognize the measles and keep it out of you. With mRNA vaccines, it doesn't change your genetics at all. All it does is build the antibodies and to teach the T cells how to respond to this coronavirus. And my understanding of it, to get sort of into the technical weeds, is that there's a a protein that's literally a spike on the outside of the virus cell. And it teaches your body how to essentially reject that spike protein. Right. Okay. Very good. So fast forward, we have this, this vaccination. We've, we've got the vaccines rolling out, coming along at a, at a fairly good clip. You know, I think there's been a lot of, of criticism of our, our vaccination rate, but actually, you know, I, I look at us compared to some other countries, and I think we're not doing as bad as sometimes the media reporting would have you believe. And then all of a sudden, we have the Delta variant. And the Delta variant, you know, based on the reporting that you're hearing, it seems like, you know, oh my gosh, we're right back where we were before the vaccines, at least, you know, at a surface level. So can you talk a little bit about what makes the Delta variant so much more of a problem than than previous variants? And then we can maybe get into the issues of, of sort of how the vaccines are holding up. 
Okay, with the Delta variant, the biggest problem is it's more contagious. And that's because it re replicates at a much faster clip than the wild variety, which was the first COVID. So I, I saw some figures yesterday where they were saying that the Delta variant can replicate like a thousand times a day. Mm. And so if you get that, you've got this virus in your body that can reproduce faster than a goldfish. <laughs> and so you've got this huge viral load. It's going to make you more contagious. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you get sick, you will get sicker with the Delta variant, but you are more contagious. And we're still learning about the Delta variant. We will hear more about it. We will learn more about it as time goes on. But it is the predominant strain. It, it does appear it, the vaccines are effective against it, but the biggest efficacy is in protecting against serious infections that would cause hospitalization or death. It doesn't, you know, the breakthrough infections, yeah, you may get a mild case, you may get asymptomatic, but most likely you're not going to end up in the hospital or dead. And so then a lot of the policies that have come out, for example, you know, some of the policies that have come out about if you're vaccinated, you need to mask in the home around your kids because they can't be vaccinated. The concern there is about transmission from somebody who is vaccinated and has a mild or an asymptomatic case to somebody who is unvaccinated and doesn't have that protection. Yes. And the problem that we get into when we start talking about kids is the data. Oh, yeah. What has led to that is there is no standard reporting of kids' COVID. Yes. You have some state, they group, when they report COVID cases, they're reporting them in these large age ranges. And so kids or children are considered zero to 17 in some states. There are a few states that report it zero to 14. Other states are zero to 18 or zero to 19. So we, and they don't break it down into smaller, so we can see what's happening to preschool kids or what's happening to elementary kids or does it make a difference if they're in high school? We just don't have that data. Nobody's reporting it. To make matters worse, this summer when the rates started going down, some states stopped reporting the age breakdowns. Mm. So we just don't have great data for knowing how bad COVID is among kids. But with the data we have, I've got some statistics here that I thought were interesting. This is as of August 19th, and it was a study put out by the American Academy of Pediatricians. Cumulative, from the time states first reported cases, 4.6 million kids total from last year to August 19th have had COVID cases that have been reported. This is anybody who's tested positive. Right. So this is between the ages of about 0 to 17, 4.6 million kids. Let's put that in perspective. In 2019, there were 75.27 million kids in the U.S. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty low figure. Of the 4.6 million kids total that had it, 12% of those cases 
or 550,000, were in California. Wow. The next highest was Florida with 275,000 cases or 6% of the total. The chance of kids getting COVID, and this again is ages 0 to 17, the average in the country is about 6% per 100,000 kids would have COVID. Now, even though we saw those large numbers in California and Florida, Rhode Island and Tennessee have the highest rate. Okay. Altogether, when you look at the number of kids with COVID, they account for about 14.6% of all the COVID cases in the nation. But again, that's including your teenagers who are more likely to be doing things that, that could, you know, we, we don't know if little kids might have more of a natural immunity. We just don't know these things. And I'm guessing that from an epidemiological perspective, there's probably more difference between, you know, a three-year-old and a, a 16-year-old than there is between a 17 and a 25-year-old. So you're grouping populations that, that aren't the same. Right. And it, this just doesn't take all of that into consideration. But now when you look at hospitalizations and mortality for kids, the numbers are extremely low. So children being hospitalized account for 0.2% to 1.9%. That's less than 2% of all the hospitalizations. So they're 14% of cases and 0.9 to 1.9% of hospitalizations. Well, okay that, okay, that number is for the number of kids with COVID who might end up in the hospital. So of all the kids, but now if you look at the total number of hospitalizations, children account for 1.6 to 3.6% of total COVID hospitalizations. Okay. For the death rate, this gets even lower. Seven states have reported no death from COVID among children. So altogether, they account for 0% 0% to 0.22% of all COVID deaths. Wow. That is a significantly small <laughs> number. That is a small number. But now the one thing we don't know is are kids transmitting this? You know, the fear before was if a little kid hugs grandma before we had vaccines, will grandma die? Right. And we don't know that. We don't know what the transmissibility is from little kids. And of course, part of the reason that we don't know that is because there has been so little attempt to even break out COVID cases from different age groups or, you know, try to track kids for transmissibility. I know there were some very early studies done in a couple of other countries that that indicated that maybe zero to 10 weren't really getting this or transmitting it as much. But, you know, that was like one or two studies from South Korea, and it was very, very early on. So you're right. And this is really frustrating, particularly for me as a parent, and probably there's some other parents in our podcast audience, you're trying to make rational decisions about what's best for your kid. You know, you don't want to put your kid at risk. You don't want to put anybody else at risk because of that. But there's just, there's no data to actually try to make those determinations. Right. And then Delta comes into the mix and we don't know yet what the numbers will do with Delta. We are seeing an increase in the number of kids getting COVID. They're still the lowest group out of all of them to get COVID, but we are seeing an increase. Is it because of Delta or is it because people are just not taking, you know, common sense precautions? 
or I, I've also wondered if it's as a percentage because those younger kids can't get vaccinated. So their percentage would, you know, by, by definition, sort of start to go up. Well, yes, because the older people are getting vaccinated. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, even though kids 12 and up can get vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine right now, mm-hmm. we're not seeing a real high vaccination rate in that age group. It's been dropping hmm. since that first happened. And I think it was because over the summer we got lulled into this idea is, oh, things are returning to normal. Right. And, you know, that's coming back to bite us. So vaccination seems like for Delta, it's still protecting you against anything that is serious. You're, you're maybe getting sort of a couple of increases in breakthrough cases, but the breakthrough cases are mild or asymptomatic. And for kids, there's an uptick in hospitalizations, a slight uptick from what I saw for, for the numbers. And certainly there's an uptick in cases, and we just don't know about transmissibility. Is, does that sort of summarize the data that we have right now? Yes. And it shows this is nothing to be taken lightly right, right. now. And and going back to the vaccine's prevention, they still are preventing against even mild cases, just not at the same level that they were when we first got them. You know, that kind of protection seems to wane over time, even though the protection against the serious disease and death has remained stable. So I have noticed that even among... So at least some of the the data that you look at, even among the unvaccinated, it seems like the death rate has gone down. And and is that because we have better treatments now for COVID than we did a year ago? Yes, we have a much better idea of what we're working with, and we know better how to treat it. There have been some drugs that have been given emergency use authorization. Remdesivir has been approved. And these, they're Biologic, most of them are biologics, but there are some that aren't. They're not cheap drugs, but they do, they are working. They are helping cut down the seriousness of the disease, cutting down hospital stays, protecting against death. There's one drug out that Dr. Fauci was talking about the other day that is called RegenCove. And it, studies have shown that if given early, in an infection before a person is hospitalized. It can keep it so they won't be hospitalized. It will prevent serious disease. There are studies also that have shown that if it's given after a person has been exposed to COVID but hasn't tested positive yet, it can prevent getting the disease. And there's these, those studies are further along, but there's also newer studies that show that even given before exposure, it may prevent getting the disease. So having drugs like that available and just knowing better how to treat people and how to treat the side effects uh, from some of the vaccines and stuff and from the disease itself, all of that has helped lower the death rate. Now, I know one of the concerns that people are having right now with Delta is sort of ICU exposure and ICUs being full and, and all the, the, the strain on the healthcare system. I know that the specifics of hospitals and doctors aren't necessarily areas that your, your publication covers, but I'm curious as to, you know, from, from that industry perspective, 
what has the impact of COVID been on on the healthcare industry that you've seen? You know, ha, what what challenges have have arisen as a result of that? And you know, what do you think the impact is going to be sort of moving forward? The impact isn't across the board. It varies by region. And this has been an issue from day one is when states and the federal government have adopted broad-based policies, it doesn't take into consideration what's happening Mm. at the local hospital or what's happening in a particular county. And so you may have, like in California, there were incidents where their, their code levels were based on the number of ICU beds within a specific area. Well, there would be hospitals that were just on the fringe of that area that had plenty of beds. But all of these restrictions went in place because the other hospitals in that area did, you know, in the more populated parts of that area, met that, that bar. And so that affected other places that really didn't meet that bar. So one of the frustrations I've seen and I've experienced personally is because of the concerns and we hear, oh, the hospitals are full, don't do elective procedures, hold off on this and that, people aren't getting the health care they need for other things, you know, the cancer screenings, for kids, there are other vaccines. And that's going to come back and hurt us because, you know, with certain cancers, if you can catch them early enough, you've got a great prognosis. But if it's not caught because somebody didn't go in for screening, it can be much more deadly. Mm. And there is concern about us falling behind on all these other areas because the focus has been so much on COVID. And the fear, you know, don't go, don't get these elective procedures. And, and an elective procedure doesn't necessarily mean cosmetic surgery. It, it's something that, well, you don't have to have it today. And, you know, we've heard scare stories. Um, they're not really stories, but we've heard anecdotes of pregnant women who were having issues and they weren't allowed to go to the hospital because of COVID restrictions. And they ended up dying in childbirth Mm. when they wouldn't have needed to had they gotten the treatment they needed. Thinking, thinking through this again, you know, from your position, looking at regulations and things like that, are there policies that would have been more effective? maybe more local control or, you know, even just a better way of accounting for and and targeting things to the data. Like how could we have done things differently and how could we do things differently moving forward? I think the most important part of this, and it's the part that got messed up the most, was the messaging. Mm. Coming from our top health officials and from all these government watchdog groups and and various people, you know, we hear misinformation, misinformation, fake news, those are kind of buzzwords. But part of the problem is from day one, the messaging got messed up. And the messaging tends to drive policy and it drives fear and it drives mistrust. And I'm not talking fake news or misinformation. I'm talking about people politicizing the data and people, they think they're speaking to the good, but they don't know what they're talking about or they don't understand what they're talking about. Or, you know, at the beginning when COVID hit, 
people like Dr. Fauci, and I'm not trying to pick on him or anything else, were, and, and others were saying cloth masks do no good at all. Don't waste your time. And you don't need to wear a mask. And, and then later they came back, oh, yeah, you've got a mask. And they were saying, well, we were trying to make sure there wasn't a run on the masks. And cloth masks are okay now. You can't give contradictory messages like that if you want people to believe you and trust you. And if you want to set policies to say, oh, we're going to have a mask mandate now, everybody has to wear a mask. Well, but wait a minute. I remember last year when you said masks didn't do any good. (laughs) So I really think the messaging has been a big part of the problem. And going back to your first question, where you, you asked about the speed with which these vaccines were developed, we remember in the run-up to the presidential election. People were screaming that these vaccines would not work, that this was just a political ploy, you know, that Trump was putting this out there to to try to improve his chances of getting elected. And, And we forget that Operation Warp Speed and the development of these vaccines happened under the Trump administration. And so everybody was poo-pooing them, not everybody, but, you know, his political opponents were poo-pooing them because... Up to and including the vice president. Right. Because, you know, wait, we're doing this too fast. We can't trust these. Well, now, after Trump, you know, lost the election, then everybody starts... Oh, you've got to get your vaccine. You've got to get your vaccine. And they come down on anybody who questions the vaccines when just a number of months ago, they were the ones questioning the vaccine. And, and that's what I'm saying. This messaging and politicizing of this is really hurting the country. It's hurting people's health. Yeah. You know, it's, I think back to World War II because you know, during World War II, of course, you had similar situation where expediting production of a bunch of stuff and, you know, some of the, the regulatory and, and uh, safety stuff that we put in place to dot every I and cross every T got removed because we needed to build, you know, X number of ships and tanks really quickly. And you didn't hear, you know, Democrats or Republicans then criticizing that process when the other party was in power, right? Everybody sort of stood shoulder to shoulder. And, you know, I just, I, I wonder sometimes how, how might things have been different if the Biden administration had just given the Trump administration a little bit of credit, you know, leaned a little bit into the patriotic aspects of this, you know, America built the best vaccine in the world and we did it in nine months, that sort of thing. I just wonder if that would have maybe had a little bit more success with, you know, at least some of, now, of course, not all the anti-vax or, or vax hesitant folks are on the right, but, you know, if that's the group that you're, you're concerned about, it doesn't seem to me like they've actually made much effort to persuade people. And I say that as somebody who's vaccinated and, you know, if anybody asks me, I'll tell them, yeah, you should absolutely get vaccinated, but you have to try to persuade people. And I haven't seen that in the messaging. Yeah. You can't just tell people, go get vaccinated. Sometimes you have to give them the facts and the data. And, and yes, there are side effects. And we hear, you know, anecdotally about these side effects, but everything in life has a side effect. Right. You know, getting into a car and going down the road is a risk. Yes. And drinking a glass of milk or a, a cup of hot coffee, you know, you could burn yourself. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember the uh, the McDonald's hot coffee lawsuit. Right. And, and so there's nothing without risk. But when you look at just the, the, t- the number of people 
who have received these vaccines, I mean, we're talking worldwide, we're talking hundreds of millions of people. And the number of side effects are, are very, very low, much lower than they are with some other products that we use or, you know, drugs that we've used. So I, I just, I think people aren't looking at this, looking at the data. And, and I don't blame people for not doing that because it's hard to find it sometimes. Yes, it is. Yeah, I know. I was having a, a conversation with a friend about, you know, masks and the policy on masks on kids. And I'm not, I, I haven't seen sufficient evidence that I think that it's justified for really young kids. And, you know, I, I said on this podcast once before, if somebody shows me the data that there's a, a significant risk of, of, you know, people two, three, four, five years old getting this, getting severely sick from it, you know, transmitting it to others, et cetera, I'd be willing to reevaluate that. But right now the data is not there. And being a parent of a four-year-old, my my philosophy is like, let's not use up the fun points of putting the masks on the kids until we know that we need to. But, you know, it's really hard when you have those conversations because there just is no data. There's there's nothing on that breaks out by age, levels of, of people getting COVID. And, you know, it does occur to me that we've got to do better about that. I mean, how hard would it actually be to say, okay, we're talking about pediatric cases of anything. You can't treat a two-year-old and a 17-year-old the same for statistical purposes. Like, we, we should really fix that. Right. And you asked what things maybe we need to do differently, and that's one of them. I think that goes right along with messaging. You've got to have the data to give a true message. And messaging should be based on data. Now, to have that data, you've got to have it standardized. And that means states, localities, however you're going to break it down, need to be reporting these in the same age ranges. They need, we need to be able to compare apples to apples. And when you've got each state doing its own thing, you can't do that. So why didn't that happen with COVID? in the United States? Why didn't the CDC when, when this started? And you know, you may not know the answer or, or there may not be an answer, but so maybe it's a rhetorical question or, or maybe not, but why wasn't there a push to say, okay, states, here's the form that we're going to give you for inputting COVID data. Here's the info that we want you to collect and we're going to standardize it. I mean, isn't that kind of what the CDC is for? Well, you would think so, but hindsight is always going to be better than foresight. Yeah, of course. And when you have an emergency come upon you, whether it is a natural disaster yeah. or something like this, you're always going to see areas of like, oh, why didn't we do that? Right. <laughs> and so it's got to be a lesson learned going forward. But uh, going back to the, to the messaging and the, and the masks and, and policy, I, I think another thing that hurts this is when you look at the different ways various groups are handling it, like the World Health Organization, which the U.S., you know, for years, like, wow, they know what they're doing. They've got their act together. And the U.S. tried to harmonize and align with them. The World Health Organization is saying kids under five should not have to wear masks. Hmm. And, you know, part of it comes down to the fact that a little kid is not going to wear a mask very well. And, and then for older kids, the World Health Organization's guidelines are very, they, they basically say it should be up to the local level. Hmm. And you need to take into consideration 
the culture and the religious background and what's susceptible in that area in how you adopt mask guidelines. They also said if you're going to have children, five and above, wearing masks, they're going to need adult supervision. Because kids, you know, when they're playing and doing stuff, that mask is going to slide down. They're not going to wear it right. They're going, all kinds of things. And so when you have a classroom with 20 kids in there and one teacher, is a teacher going to be spending all the teaching time telling this kid and then that kid, <laughs> wear the mask right? Might be easier to just move the desks further apart. Well, and that's the other thing that the WHO recommended is that if you've got enough space that you can have one meter, they're saying one meter, not six feet. One meter is three feet, 3.3 feet. So having one meter of distance and of course not having anybody in there who is sick, yeah. that, that that should be enough. So if you look at the, the WHO's guidelines compared with some of the things we're hearing here, they really make more common sense. By the way, I'm pretty sure that is the first thing that anyone has said positive about the World Health Organization on this podcast since COVID started. <laughs> well, and that's, I was surprised when I read their guidelines the other day on it. I thought, you know, these do make sense. It's just, right. what can you say? When they're right, they're right. When they're right, they're right. Yeah, absolutely. So last, last question. And thank you for taking the time. I think this has really been been enlightening. One of the questions that sometimes comes up more often in frustration than anything else from people is, when is this going to be over? And, you know, you go back to messaging. I don't think that anybody's really given a clear message of these are the conditions under which we would say, you know, we are out from from the other side of, of COVID. Other than people always want to put a date on it and make it you know, date-based rather than conditions-based, because as we're learning in Afghanistan, these are things that foolishly politicians like to do. So if we were talking about conditions-based, what in your view from, from kind of the research that you've done and the things that you've seen would be the conditions that we could say, okay, we're done with COVID at least as a pandemic? A lot of people have talked about herd immunity, that when we reach herd immunity, but they haven't been able to quantify what herd immunity is. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons it's so hard to say when are we done with COVID as a pandemic is based on we don't know if new variants will emerge. Right. And we're so focused on what's happening in the U.S. that we forget how global our society is. Yeah. And I'm thinking back last month, I believe it was, there were those people who traveled from India to a wedding in, was it Texas? Everybody was vaccinated, but some of them had just gotten vaccinated. Right. And nine people ended up with COVID and some of them, I think a couple of them may have died. Mm. When we have people traveling from other countries, especially countries that don't have the vaccine resources, Guatemala, 3% of the people there are vaccinated. Wow. Should we be talking about a Marshall Plan for vaccinations? I mean, is that something that we're, we're realistically going to need? Like where we, we just, as Americans, we're going to need to try to get large portions of the world vaccinated? Well, there are a lot of issues involved with that. And that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> we'll have to have you come back on, on, on that one. And, and it sounds like you'd be the person to, to do it. 
I've been covering some of the World Trade Organization's discussions on this, and there are some serious legal considerations and stuff that until it's not just what the immunity level is in our country, but what is it globally, because we operate as a global society these days. Well, I think that's that's not a uh, satisfying answer, but I think it's the, it's the best one we've got. And I think it do, it is an important thing for us to keep in mind that there is that global dimension that's going to have to be resolved as well. Mary Sarabroff, thank you so much for coming on and hitting a lot of topics in, in more detail than we had any reasonable right to expect. And I think anybody who's listened to this podcast knows way more about everything connected with COVID than they did before. So appreciate that. And that's going to do it for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Tell your friends, tell your family members, etc. about Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and have a Great rest of your day. For Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.